You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 77, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Well, it's the first week of February, and it's good to be back home and to be turning out another episode after being away for nearly a month in Peru. Uh, Now, that was an interesting trip, to say the least, with uh, a lot of travel issues, uh, uh, both going down and coming back. I'll spare you the details, but I am beginning to suspect that the golden age of air travel is behind us, folks. All travel issues aside, I had a fantastic time with our two back-to-back tour groups down there, and I think all of the folks had a pretty good time, too. Uh, Of course, the Bushmaster count helped a lot with that. Uh, uh, One Bushmaster was found on our first tour, which is about what we expect and hope for, and then on the second tour, uh, an incredible five Bushmasters showed up which is uh, kind of mind-blowing. And four of those lachesis were found in the forest at our Madre Selva field station, which is not our hotspot or go-to spot for them at all. In fact, we've hiked many miles over many years without seeing one there. So it was really cool to to see those uh, in number at that field station. And number five was at our Santa Cruz field station where we usually see them. And uh, this one was kind of a special cherry on top for me. Uh, and I'll say more about that in a future episode. But needless to say, I recorded some segments with some of the folks who encountered their first Bushmaster, and I will put that out sometime in the next few months. And then I've got a couple other recordings that I did down there for shows, which we'll be putting in appearances as we go into 2023. Oh, we also got to see uh, three of the two-stripe forest pit vipers, uh, which are Bothrops bilineatus, which uh, that's another big find for both groups, and uh, that's a snake that doesn't turn up on every trip. So, And I was happy to see a number of new frog species as well, uh, you know, new to me at, at least, uh, including a couple of uh, glass frogs. So even after 13 trips, I still managed to see something new each time. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to give a shout out to Craig Howard, uh, the show's newest patron. And Craig was on our first Peru trip last month, and uh, he took some awesome photos. I especially like some of his frog shots. And it was good to meet you, Craig, and thanks so much for your support. And as always, I want to thank all of the show's patrons. You, you all make it possible for me to keep this entertainment channel rolling on into the future. And if you're out there listening and you want to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's pretty easy to do. And I'll tell you all about it at the end of the show. Well, here we are again with yet another edition of Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. That's right, two in a row even if they are a month apart. And this one again features a guest from Australia. So as I said before, um, this is more by accident than design. We're not moving to Australia or changing the show's name, but Alex and I are happy about it and uh, we hope you are as well. So our guest this week is Jules Farquhar, who is a doctoral candidate in the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University in Victoria, Australia. And Jules is a co-author on a paper published in the Journal of Biogeography last year, entitled Using Crowdsourced Photographic Records to Explore Geographical Variation in Color Polymorphism. So Alex and I talked with Jules just before Christmas about this paper, 
which primarily concerns lace monitors. And we also cover some other cool Australian herb stuff as well. So let's get to our conversation with Jules. Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Herb Science Sunday. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Thanks. Glad to be here again. And uh, we also have a special guest this week. We have Jules Farquhar, all the way from Australia. Welcome, Jules. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So um, here we are again talking to somebody from Australia. I recently... uh, I also talked to somebody from New Zealand recently too, so I'm I'm getting that that quadrant of the planet, and I'm hitting it pretty hard. Uh, but uh, there's a a good reason we're talking to you, Jules, and and uh, I I believe if I have this right, Alex, you saw a tweet from Jules about a paper that he's yeah. a co-author on, and you got all excited, and uh, yeah. so uh, that's how this all came about because this this topic is right up your alley, and we won't. Draw this out too much further, but uh, uh, Jules, you're a co-author of, of a paper called uh, "Using Crowdsourced Photographic Records to Explore Geographical Variation in Color Polymorphism," which is a great title, I think. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's you and your co-authors, uh, Armin Pilly and uh, Win Russell. And uh, before we get too much further and dig into the paper, we need to find out more about our guests. So, Jules, can you, you give us a, a, a little run-in on, into uh, what, what you're up to, uh, what, where you're affiliated, what school you're affiliated with, and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, so I work as a research officer at Monash University in Victoria, in Melbourne. Um, I've been interested in reptiles for a really long time in one way or another. Um, I started off keeping reptiles as pets, and then that graduated into going out into the wild, looking for them, photographing them, that sort of thing. And then I really fell in love with science and sort of traded in keeping reptiles and that sort of thing for um, studying them. So I went to university, again, continued to develop this interest in research at university and um, then did my honours degree at, uh, at Monash University and shortly after finishing my honours, I got my current role as a, as a research officer there. So I work for a professor that, um, in a research group that focuses on primarily skinks, skinks ecology, conservation. So that keeps me very busy. But, um, yeah, this, this project actually didn't have anything to do with that role. It was a basically a side project that I took on before I started my role as a research officer. So I was in between jobs. Um, this is around about the COVID period, so I had a lot of time at home to, to sit and think. And, and it's basically the origin of the Lace Wonder project. Okay, so this paper... Cool. Doesn't have it in the title, but the paper concerns itself with with lace monitors, uh, Varanus varius, I believe, and uh, there's actually a, a couple of uh, uh, we'll call them color morphs uh, or pattern morphs of this monitor. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there, there's the, the everybody oohs and ahs over the lace monitor. You see a picture of them, it's like, oh, these are great. But there's also a, another uh, uh, morph of them, another form that they come in. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at one point the other form of, of the lace monitor was considered a separate species back when we looked at things and made decisions on species based on how they how they appear. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So a while ago it was considered um, Granus belli, um, given its morphological differences. So we've described species based off a lot less than that. So I, I empathize with them when they've 
come along in the pre-molecular era and looked at them and gone, okay, these are different species. Let's call it a different taxon. But sure. as we've known more recently, thanks to reptile keepers and the lace of breeders, um, we sort of know how that um, how that gene is exchanged. So it appears to display Mendelian uh, dominance. So um, you've got the Bell gene uh, in a, in the homozygous or heterozygous state. It'll manifest. So in other words, there's only one way to be a normal phase lace wonder, and that's in a double recessive state. So if you're looking at the you know, Punnett square of the of the ratios um, in lace monitors, what you'd expect the offspring to be, you'd expect 25% to uh, express the lace monitor phenotype, the lace morph, um, 25% to be the homozygous bells and express that bells. Then you've got the remaining approximately 50% of the clutch that are heterozygous. They're still going to display the bells phenotype because it is the dominant allele. So that's so interesting that they appear to be the rarer phenotype despite um, despite there being more ways to make a bell's phase laser if that makes sense. So and we think that's partly there could be multiple reasons for that. We ultimately don't know, but it could be that um, this is a relatively recent mutation. And if it is a dominant allele, then we might expect that it would start you know, taking off like wildfire over time. And maybe we're seeing that. Maybe we're we're at a period now where we're seeing the bells morph where it originates in the outback, start to become more prevalent towards the east. That's under the assumption that it is um, it is a favourable trait. It could alternatively be true that um, although there are more ways to be a, it's, there's more probability of being a bell's phase lace wander in a clutch, it could be the case that it's deleterious in more eastern locations. And that's sort of the case we build up in the paper. We say, look, there seems to be this climatic basis to the geographical separation of the two morphs. So maybe if bells morphs do try to become dominant towards the east coast, natural selection doesn't really favour sort of a big conspicuous uh, yellow lizard in an environment that's dominated by the darker backgrounds. So I, I think that's why we see that the bells morph is, is simply rare or absent along the coast. Well, I'll try to uh, make sure I get, uh, before you take off on this, Alex, because I know you're itching. Um, before, uh, I just want to mention, I'll, I'll get a picture of both the different morphs and put them in the show notes that pe so people can understand what we're talking about. Essentially, you have a lighter, a lighter banded form and then a darker, uh, lacy form. That's why it's called the lace monitor, but go ahead, Alex. No, I was just going to back out a little bit and talk more about the lace monitor, like Varanus various as a species and so they were originally described as as two different species, Varanus belli and then Varanus varius. But do you know, was it someone actually keeping them in captivity and realizing that like, oh, the bells morph and the lace morph come out, can come out of one clutch that actually like caused them to say, wait, these should really be one species? Or it, it seems like so obvious now, um, but but back in the day, do you know if, if that's what it took to describe them as a single species instead? Yeah, that's exactly what it took. Yeah. So seeing <laughs> you had a, um, you get mo both morphs in the same clutch. So that's really the, right. the smart gun that uh, they're not species. Yeah. The, there's never been an easier way to sync a species than that. And it's like, yeah. yeah, they all come from one clutch. Yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of those cases in North America, right? We had the the gray banded king snake, which was 
originally thought to be two different species, you know, Alterna uh, and uh, Blairi. And, of course, somebody hatched both out of the single clutch. Also, um, the uh, California kingsnake, uh, which has right. a, banded, a banded version and a, a striped version. And uh, lo and behold, they came out of the same clutch the same way. And people went, oh, Okay. <laughs> So it's fun. It's fun to hear that this is happening elsewhere too. So, yeah, agree. Kind of interesting. Another uh, historical quirk was that um, initially all the Bell's phase lace monitor specimens that were handed in were all of one sex. I, I can't remember if it was all male or all female, but it was one of the two. Um, huh. And so that led a lot of people to conclude that oh, it's actually just a sex-specific morph. Um, again, we know oh. that's not. Wow. Wow. But yeah, there's a lot you can learn from reptile breeders. We, we know uh, a lot about, you know, what its genetic path of inheritance is purely from a non-scientific context, which is, which is reptile right. breeders. So, yeah, the idea that the old reptile keeper has a lot to contribute to science is, is absolutely true, and, um, and they often yield a lot of really interesting data for, in terms of life history and biology of reptiles. But, researchers often don't spend the time pursuing i'll i'll give my little plug or connection to this paper that i did my phd on the evolution of melanism and was interested in studying how melanism like darkened coloration or even black coloration evolved in multiple different reptile species and the first thing i did was contact some people who bred um eastern hognose snakes which are native to the U.S. and are come in a variety of different colors, including completely jet black, to see if anyone without stud without like writing it down or writing a scientific paper had figured out how they could breed an all black clutch, or if they even knew like at what rate they they come out as all black because. Yeah, there are some populations here that tend to be more black somewhere. You can find all black individuals, but they're also yellow and black and orange and black. And so I was really interested in that. And I, I agree with you. There's there is a lot we can learn from from captive breeding for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, COVID happens. You've got some time. You're twiddling your thumbs and wondering what to do and you thinking about things. And what we when you uh, set out to do the research behind this paper, what were you? What was your initial thought to, uh, you know, what was your hypothesis that you were trying to prove or disprove? Yeah, so just well, starting with the origins of the paper, it was, it was sort of the confluence of multiple independent uh, factors that basically led me to the undeniable conclusion that I have to pursue this no matter what else I have going on. It was basically, <laughs> I, I like lace monitors. I think they're one of the, well, I love varanid lizards. I think they're one of the most charismatic uh, families of reptiles that are out there and I've always been fascinated with those numbers from a, from a young age and I used to keep them as pets when I was a teenager and so you know I've been thinking about lace wonders for a while but more recently as I've become more interested in science and academia I've been contemplating the utility of iNaturalist I was like hmm we've got this data set which is just like every other data set we've always had uh, some institution starts a, a database where you can upload observations of organisms so what's that capturing it's capturing the temporal occurrence of something where where things occur throughout the year in time and the spatial occurrence where, where they occur in the landscape but the thing i naturally does differently is everything's predicated on photos and that might sound trivial but 
and it took me a while to uh, to warm up to iNaturalist. I had friends suggesting it as recently as 2018, and I thought, nah, I don't want people knowing what I see, where I go, and and seeing photos of it. That's a bit. And then I realised actually, it's, it's kind of selfish to travel as as much as I do and see so much biodiversity and not record it. And so over the years, that's what's become more interest interesting to me is leaving this legacy of records across the landscape because if everyone did that we'd have you know we, we'd get closer to um, having perfect knowledge of distribution of the species um, so yeah I've, I've been a pretty big champion of iNaturalist for, for a while and I was contemplating its use and what we've done with it and so I thought okay we can now look at traits that are in the photos what's in the photos we've got multiple phenotypes that an organism can have, what's the easiest one that we can discern from the photos, discrete colour polymorphisms. It gets tricky if it's if things animals vary in colour along a continuum. It's like how do you score that? How do you score a species whose populations, let's say they range from south to north and they slowly get lighter in colour. It's hard to standardise the colour in the images and quantify that in an objective way. But with lace models, we know it's a discrete thing. You can look at an image quite quickly and go, okay, that's the bell's morph. It's a discrete allocation of the phenotype or it's the lace morph. And so I thought, okay, that's really amenable. And again, all the while spurred on by the fact that these things look bloody awesome and would uh, keep any researcher interested in pursuing. So, yeah, I basically thought, let's do this. And I reached out to Armin and Wynn, my co-authors, and said, here's the plan. We've got this... Um, long-held hypothesis, which, well, that's probably worth briefly digressing to to talk about, the key hypothesis of all this. Um, it's, it's been known for years that um, the Bell's Morph, if you wanted to see it, you have to go into the outback into the drier country inland. And so that was just a rumour we all accepted as as keepers back in the day and um, well, general reptile enthusiasts know about the Bell's Morph and all we know about is this rather vague, uh, assumption that it's associated with the outback in some way. So that was fine for me to accept back then, but now as a scientist, I thought that's not really intellectually fulfilling explanation, just accepting that that's the way it is because it is. I thought, oh, well, let's address this with data. And again, iNaturalist seemed like an easy way to solve that problem. So, and as with most research projects you, that you pursue, you kind of already have a suspicion of the outcome, and that's what motivates you to pursue that hypothesis. So we thought, look, all these, every time we click on a record of a Bell's phase lace monitor, nine times out of ten it's out, out in the outback west of the Great Dividing Range. Um, it's along eastern Australia, it's very messy, high rainfall. We have this mountain range that uh, receives a lot of the rain, and then by the time the clouds go inland past the mountain range, they don't really have any moisture, they've dumped all their rain on the east coast. So it gets pretty dry pretty quickly as one moves further west into the interior of Australia. And that's where these Belsay's lace monitors seem to be popping up. So we thought, okay, it's, it's got a climatic basis. Let's take climate variables and do distribution modelling and model the niche of the two morphs and see if they occupy um, slightly different parts of the, of the species climate. So you have a, an anecdotal uh, truism, right? Uh, Anecdotal is the bells monitors, the bell eye phase are inland, and the lace monitor phase are more coastal. And then you look at INAT, just INAT data, you're just looking through it, it's like, oh, this seems to 
support that. So maybe there's a way to model. Now you're going, to, let's put some science in here and model this. Is that a fair yes. assumption of how this went? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly how it played out. So, yeah, we already suspected what, what we would find. Um, it's just a matter of uh, doing the modeling. So I went to Armin Pilly, the, the second author of the paper. He, he's at Monash as well. And uh, we've been good friends for a while now. And I know that he's a distribution modeling genius. And the sort of stuff that happens in this paper, he's uh, well versed at doing. So I basically came to him and I said, here's, here's the plan. This is what we want to do. And he said, oh, that's easy. I do that for breakfast. Let's go. So, and he's, he's doing his PhD now and he's almost finished. He's done a fantastic job of it. And this is basically in the same genre of what he was doing. So he was doing distribution modeling uh, in the context of invasion biology and um, invasive species. And so the same analytical framework applied to that. So we've got, he sort of treated the lace morph as as he has in his other research projects, like it was the, the native range of an invasive frog and then they modeled the, the, the niche of that same frog in its expanded range in another continent. And so he just applied that to, in this case, one morph versus the other morph. Has there been a shift in the, in the niche? Has it expanded its niche into an arid subset of, of the species climate niche? So, yeah, it was, it was um, a combination of iNaturalist um, waiting to uh, have this study um, applied to it and knowing the right people who were interested in the same problems as, that I was interested in. Before we get too deep into the world of like niches and climate variables and all that stuff, which I do think is cool and was an interesting part of this paper, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about lace monitors themselves and because I, you have this figure in your paper um, where you basically plot the distribution of lace monitors and Bell's monitors, or the two morphs, basically. And I was just astounded that this one species is found like all the way into tropical northern Queensland, all the way down to like Adelaide. That that's like from the literal rainforest down to the American version of of. San Francisco's climate, like a Mediterranean, cool, foggy, coastal environments. And um, and then, of course, the Bells Monitor into the Outback, which is like hot, dry, um, arid environment. So I, as a, a herper, I was wondering if you could tell us like what these monitors do, what they eat, um, what kind of habitats they, they like to inhabit. I mean, you, you kind of got at that already, but like how the heck do they manage uh, in in areas as different as tropical rainforests and like coastal scrub and eucalypt forests all mm. all along the eastern uh, coast of of Australia? Yeah, sure. So yeah, you're absolutely right. They do have a big distribution. They span the entire eastern seaboard of the country, pretty much, and across that range, they sample basically every major. Um, Climatic zone. So up in Cairns, it's tropical rainforest. Um, Sydney, Melbourne, much cooler, temperate climates. Um, and then again, further inland, you've got semi arid and even right into the arid zone, you can record in areas that are inland enough that you can consider them low rainfall enough to be arid. Um, yeah, they have an interesting distribution. Um, they're, they're, they're a large lizard, they're the second largest lizard in Australia, um, second only to the Parenti, which is a 
Padres at some Yarrow zone. But in terms of weight, I think lace bombers might actually be heavier. The Parenti's a lot more elongate, and that's why they take the title of criticism in the country. But they're a lot, a lot slenderer compared to lace bombers. Lace bombers tend to uh, rule the roost around a few camp campgrounds in, in Sydney and places like that. So it's a common sight of you, know, you, you go have a picnic in the outer outer suburbs of Sydney and in, in the forest. It's not on, not uncommon to see uh, several lace mummers come slowly swaggering in and stealing the sausage you drop on the ground. Um, <laughs> so some of them can get pretty bulky and, and they can weigh quite a lot. So they're, they're practically the biggest in the country as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, yeah, they're the top predator. That's the sort of niche they fill here. So over where you guys are in the States, you have a lot of large mammalian predators. Um, our large predators are basically these monitors, it's the Parenti and lace monitors, and, of course, the dingo. So... Yeah, dingoes and these two large monitor lizards, that's basically our main terrestrial predators over here. So that's the, the niche they're filling. So lace monitors are really pretty associated with treed environments. That, that seems to be a key component of their ecology. So most most of the time, if you approach a lace monitor and it's nervous and it wants to get away from you, it'll ascend a tree pretty quickly. Um, and they go into the tree hollows and they rip out nesting possums. They eat possums and they're... There's a lot of photos of lace monitors climbing a tree because they uh, a cockatoo nest and um, causing all sorts of havoc for for nesting birds and that sort of thing. So, but yeah, they really like the tree environments. And if you look at the records, you can see where tree environments cut out. That's when lace monitors seem to cut out. So I'm interested in the factors that determine the distribution of, of lace monitors, and that's the next project I want to work on. I think it's a combination of the availability of tall tree habitats and also termite mounds because this is a yet again another interesting thing about lace monitors they appear to almost exclusively nest in, in termite mounds a, a specific species wow. of termite. so i suspect the inland distributional limits of lace monitors are dictated by not only where the tall trees are but where the um, symbiosis stops with this uh, termite now I'm forming termite species. Cool. Thank you. This reminds me of uh, you know back was it last year, Alex, when we talked about term our, uh, the corkscrew burrows. Uh, oh yeah, Varanus Goldie. Um, yeah, exactly. The Gould monitor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we we talked about monitors before on the show, and uh, as part of a Herb Science Sunday segment, so I, that just came right to mind. So, but these guys uh, use the ready-made burrows. That uh, termites afford, it sounds like. Oh yeah, I, it's a very clever idea. Absolutely, it's um, you know you've got this large lizard that has a ridiculously long incubation time. It's about the same as a human; it's about nine months. Wow, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in nine months uh, in terms of temperature and moisture conditions. So, but and they live in East Coast Australia is very seasonal. You've got really hot summers, really cool winters. Termite mounds offer the great, a great buffer against that climatic variability. They can bore a hole into the mound, lay their eggs, termites patch up the hole. You've got this termite mound that offers near constant uh, stable temperature and humidity that, that you would need to uh, successfully incubate such a large lizard over a long period. So I think that's that's part of their success story is, is nesting. And they seem to be exclusively nesting in those mounds. So another 
species that actually overlaps. It, it has a much smaller range, as the Rosenberg's monitor, Ramus Rosenbergi. Um, it occurs across southern Australia. You get it in southwest Western Australia and various other parts along the southern coast, and then it occurs up near Sydney where it overlaps with, with lace monitors. Interestingly, they mound in termite, they nest in termite mounds, but they also nest in burrows in the ground. But there's heaps of evidence of both. With lace monitors, such a common species, we've all known about it for years, everyone's been looking at them and taking photos. There's only evidence of lace monitors nesting in termite mounds, which I find really interesting. If anyone listening has evidence to the contrary, I'd love to know if you've got evidence of a lace monitor <laughs> nesting in the ground. That's got to be interesting. But um, and, and it's building a case that they're an obligate mound nester. And the other evidence for that is Rosenberg's monitors, there's heaps of evidence of them, of hatchlings coming out of burrows in the ground, hatchlings coming out of mounds. They escape the nest of their own accord. With lace monitors, I'm yet to see evidence of um, hatchlings emerging without parental assistance. So the photos you see of lace monitor hatchlings coming out of mounds, they're coming out of a massive hole this big that's already been excavated by either the same mother that laid them or another unrelated mother. Incidentally, we don't know yet. Um, so I just find that really huh. interesting. I was going to ask, is there evidence of communal nesting with that species? Um, there's a lot of evidence of, um, I think if, you, if there's a good termite mound in the area, I think all the female lace wanders know about it and would use it just because those resources are probably not that common in the landscape. There's definitely regions where termite mounds are, are fairly available, but I think if there's a um, tried and proven uh, nesting site and you've got multiple lace monitors in there, I think they'll, they'll tend to use it. So, But, yeah, the reality is there's not much research on nesting ecology of lace monitors in a really detailed way, but that's what I want, <laughs> that's what I want to do. We've got a research project we're, we're planning to address these, these multiple unanswered questions. But the, the third line of evidence um, that I find interesting that builds up on what I was just saying is um, that again builds this idea that they are dependent on these mounds that they that they do require um, parental assistance to get out is that lace monitors nest every year, whereas Rosenberg's monitors don't. They nest if they hatch every um, two years, and that makes sense. It's like if if Rosenberg's monitors can let themselves out of the nest, you don't need the mother to come back the next season to let them out. Whereas lace monitors, again, are under this unconfirmed assumption that lace monitors do need parental assistance, it's it's pretty coincidental that they do have to nest every year. You can imagine if there if lace monitors um, didn't have their mothers coming back to to crack open a nest and lay the next season's eggs, you wouldn't get that release of the young. So So what what you're saying is somewhere there's a, a termite or termite mound with uh, mummified uh, hatchling monitors in it that couldn't make their way out because the parent never came back. I, I'm sure that's happened sometimes, but I think old lady evolution is too elegant to let something like that happen. I, I think I think it would happen accidentally sometimes, but what I suspect has happened based off what we know about evolution, I think that's a bad strategy, the, the, the sit and wait method. So we can imagine ancestral lace monitors that, had genes that who that in effect said um, when you hatch from the egg, just wait around for some lace monitor to let you out. That more often than not would result in a lot of deaths and I suspect what's happened is a more uh, stable evolutionary state would be 
um, something much more sophisticated than that. Mothers coming back um, and re- and releasing the eggs. Um, but I, I won't get into it too much because it's all very speculative. But I suspect there might be some waiting involved as well. So rather than the lace monitors hatching when they're developmentally ready, and then potentially being entombed for an unspecified period of time, just hoping that a lace monitor will open the nest. I suspect lace monitors reach development but then stay in the egg waiting for the nest to be cracked. So they're probably waiting for a stimulus, such as the sudden temperature and humidity fluctuations you get when the, the nest is breached. And that's the cue for these eggs to, to hatch. And that makes sense. It's, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. They run straight out past the, the would-be predator's face because that's the thing. The, the males often crack open the nests and eat the eggs, so that, that happens a lot. So it's oh. a fairly elegant solution. Whatever cracks open the nest, they can fly out straight into the, uh, the summer heat and start, start eating, um, whereas the... Previous hypothesis would have you believe that they just sort of wait around in the lobby of this of this mound, getting bothered by a million termites, and I, I don't think I don't think that solution would explain the success of lace monitors that we see. Do do lace monitors eat termites? Like, would other lace monitors just come and tear open every termite mound because they're looking for food, and some have a nest in them, some don't, or or do they not really eat termites? Yeah, they don't really eat termites. I, I'm uncertain if, if hatchlings would. I, I don't know if a hatchling lace monitor would, would bother with... Uh, we don't really know much about the diet of, of young lace monitors. We know a lot about large lace monitors, and that's that they they eat some of the largest mammalian prey getting around. Right. So I don't think they bother with, with the small termites. But, yeah, do the, do the hatchlings eat them when they come out? I'm not sure. I think if you look at a hatchling lace monitor, it's still large enough that... They would eat something a lot more substantial. I had hatchling lace monitors, and they weren't really messing with anything smaller than a pinky mouse. So, um, my bet would be to say that they don't see the termites as, as a food resource. But I could be wrong. Right. Cool. Well, I appreciate that deep dive into lace monitor natural history. That I like. We could talk for another hour just on that. <laughs> That's really cool. Um. Yeah. So. You you had this hypothesis that um, well really you you had this great data set of iNaturalist observations and you wanted to see if there were niche differences between the Bell's morph and um, and the the lace morph of the lace monitor. Um, I'm just well Mike can give his plug for Herp Mapper at any time, but um, I'll say that we're both big fans of of community scientist projects, whether iNaturalist or Herp Mapper or, or whatever, I agree with you that it's an amazing treasure trove of data. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the data set that, that you amassed and comparatively, given what you know about lace monitors, if you could kind of estimate how long it would take you to gather that data on your own, if you had to go from Cairns to Adelaide and, and actually photograph all of those lace monitors? Like, how, how valuable was this to your research? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, very valuable. This study couldn't have been done, you know, 10 years ago. So iNaturalist launched in 2008, and this is an interesting realisation I had about a month ago, is that when we downloaded 
all the INAP for securities for lace monitors sometime in early 2021, I think. And we had about 1,600 records. So that means it's taken since 2008 to 2021, over a decade, to get to about 1,500 records. And then in the year that's passed since we did that initial download and analysis, there's now 4,700 based on the record. So wow, it's, it's in only a year, it has more than doubled. So that, it's, yeah, that's that's a testament to the growing popularity of iNaturalist. So we're, we're riding this iNaturalist data wave right now. And, you know, I'm not the only one. If you look on Google Scholar, so many papers that are coming out saying, just bashing on about the utility of iNaturalist, example papers like my paper, demonstrating just the kinds of things it can it can do. So, yeah, we absolutely wouldn't have been able to do this um, back then, say, six years ago. This wouldn't be enough data. And that's that's another reason to choose lace monitors. Like, there was a paper in uh, 2021, um, Masaglio and Callahan, I believe it was, they basically did a review paper saying, this is the current state of iNaturalist in Australia. You can see it's just exponential growth in terms of the number of users, the number of observations. People are loving iNaturalist, everyone's using it. And they had a they had a map that um, uh, showed the density of records, and we could see that it's pretty low density in most of Australia, in the arid centre. Not a lot of people going to the outback compared to the east coast. But the beautiful thing about that was um, the area where it is biased is the east coast, and that basically corresponds to the entire lace monitor distribution. So it meant that the lace monitor distribution was pretty well sampled and we had a good sample of both more. It'd be a different story if, let's say, we were dealing with a species who had a, let's say, lace monitors had a third morph. It was really rare and it occurred in one outback location that wasn't sampled. We wouldn't be able to do the study. It's like, well, there's only one record of this species. But because of where lace monitors happen to be located along the east coast, which is where most of our, our population is, these people have been recording those numbers like crazy. And I think, again, another contributing factor, such a large, awe-inspiring lizard, most people are going to be, if you're going to be recording anything on iNaturalist, it's going to make you stop and get out your camera, take a photo and compel you to upload it to something like iNaturalist. It's going to be this large, amazing lizard that excites a lot of interest. So I think that's another contributing factor to why they're so represented in the data set. Yeah, uh, I think that that's um, the, the sexy factor. Yeah, it's, uh, it's prevalent in iNaturalist and in HerpMapper and other um, community science-based uh, data collection forms. Those things get a lot of attention, but they're also the thing that just jumps out at you. It, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to get a, a picture of that small lizard that's under a bush, um, but uh, you can't miss with a you know a meter-long lizard that's you know yeah. coming up on your picnic basket. Uh, <laughs> so it kind of lends itself to that and. And the yeah. iNaturalist has exploded everywhere, uh, especially over COVID. I think it's, uh, there's a big interest. People have just gone nuts about uh, the, the natural world in the past uh, few years, and I think it's great. Uh, we see that with HerpMapper as well. Um, so you have all these, um, I call them meat-based biosensors that are just wandering around the landscape recording data, and uh, yeah. I think it's great. Let's put those, let's yeah. put that, all those observations to work and there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that could be done using this data. It's just that nobody's really, you know, people aren't really tapping into it. Like I assume they will in the future, like, which is kind of why 
your paper was kind of exciting to me. It's like, yeah, here we go. We're starting to starting to really use this accumulated data that people are are putting in, and uh, and it's right. It's the right kind. Of, it's like you say, you need a photograph to do your work, and a photograph is always required in order to have a, a record that can be what do you call it, research grade or a substantial, what well, we call it in HerpMapper, we call it a voucher. You need that to, so people can say, yeah, that's exactly what that is. So this, this seems like it's right up your alley. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other benefit of it is leaving aside the research potential and being able to quantify phenotypes from the photos, but just having that undeniable evidence that something does occur at a location. Like I remember doing my honors degree I did it on a small common stink at a particular part of its inland distribution. I was basically trying to work out why does it stop at the transition from the mesic zone to the arid zone. And one thing that really was dictating where I would select my fieldwork sites was I was going off what the current knowledge of the distribution of that species was. So I was looking at records thinking, oh, are they really out here? There was a cluster of records by one person. Um, and, you know, when you, it's really suspicious when you have an outlying cluster of records in a weird location from one person all from like the same day. It's like, well, should I, do I include them in the modelling? Do I actually waste time putting field sites there and assume they're there? And there's a lot of head-scratching about whether you should include records in the database. And that has important implications in the context of endangered species. It's like people just dismiss outlying records and say, oh, no, I know the species well. They wouldn't be out there. What would this you know, random member of the public know about this species? We're going to delete this outlying <laughs> record. It's probably not true. But as we've now seen from iNaturalist, I, I go through it and I, I see a photo of a species. I'm like, that is definitely this species and it definitely shouldn't be there. And there's this... You know, multiple records in this far off location, which which suggests it does occur there. So we, we get to include those records and only to be certain of it. So that's the other huge thing about our network. I, I want to mention something else that's related to this, and that's the Frog ID project that's run out of the Australia Museum by uh, by Jody Rowley. Uh, and it had the same sort of thing, you know, people just, uh, you know, using an app on their phone to record a frog call and, uh, you know, wonder of wonders. There are species that are popping up that in places that they had no idea they were that they existed. Same thing. It's like there were assumptions made about where these some various species of frogs live, and it turns out that those uh, assumptions are aren't always correct. Uh, so, uh, the, you know the um, the idea that you can you know the frog recorded call is probably just as good as a photo, right? Because those things are fairly uh, species specific, you know. You, you don't get mem- you don't get frog call mimics or anything. So, yeah. Well, in the context of frogs, there's some frog species that you can't really ID unless you hear the call. So that's an example where the visuals fall apart and you need the call. So yeah, I know, uh, yeah. frog IDs again another great example of a of a citizen science initiative that's just so invaluable. And yeah, what what that's done for frog research is has been pretty significant over. There is years since it's coming up. I regret to say that I haven't lodged much with Frog ID, but that's not because I don't think it's worthwhile. It absolutely is. <laughs> it's because I heavily bias towards squamates, and so I much less often find myself out frogging these days, although I do like frogs. It's just my time is preoccupied with the immense diversity of stinks and other squamates that we have here in Australia. 
I think we I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in Australia. The, the, the great frogs are great, but also have you seen the lace monitor? and i mean come on you're in australia as well that's like reptile the number one uh biodiversity hotspot for reptiles whereas amphibians like yeah there's a lot there's there's some cool ones but just doesn't compare absolutely yeah and i i'm not too well traveled i i've only left australia to go to new zealand to speak at a conference a couple of years ago and that was about it you know, people often ask me, oh, when are you going to go do a trip overseas? When are you going to go here and there and see these vipers and all that? I'm, like, I'm well aware there's amazing reptiles in other parts of the world outside of Australia, but the amount of people that come here and do research here, I've got a mate from Italy and people from Brazil and the Philippines, they all come here and there's a reason they're coming here is because we have crazy reptile diversity. So I, I just thought I, I want to lift every rock and log in Australia and find the amazing diversity of reptiles we have here before I start going elsewhere because I just, I love monitor lizards. And Australia's a stronghold for monitor lizards. We have more than half of them here. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Not to say that I wouldn't go uh, elsewhere. I'd love to come to the States. And I know you, you guys have some amazing reptiles there, but um, let me see a few more monitor lizards first. <laughs> totally understandable. Okay, so Alex, where what was your? You had some other questions you were, or, or other issues you were interested with this paper. I mean, I have a ton, and so uh, I mean, it, it was just it was cool. I mean, if we're kind of leading people through chronologically, you you have this awesome data set, like sixteen hundred observations of uh, Varanus varius from across its range, and then so we don't get too deep into the weeds. You basically thin them out so that no two observations are too close to each other and might be uh, correlated with each other because they're really close. And then um, you basically layer on a bunch of different climate variables and to figure out which climate variables are most important or best explain the distribution that you see. Um, one, did I get that right? And two, what what climate variables did you find were most important? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, you're spot on. That's basically how, how it works. So you with distribution modeling, you start with obviously the records. There's a lot of record cleaning and that sort of thing to do. So running the actual models and everything, that's actually the easy part. The, the hardest part is the first step. It's thinking about the data. Is it right? Is it representative? what climate variables are justifiable and ecologically meaningful to use, that sort of thing. So starting with the records, um, with most projects, you have to address bias. And so, um, you know, that's that occurs in a lot of data sets. And with iNaturalist, um, it's no exception. So that's something we, we battled with the reviewers of the paper about a bit because they were mentioning all sorts of bias, and which they were right to do so. But we, we made this case for why we had a unique situation where the bias wasn't exactly relevant. So one consideration is um, there's a bias towards the East Coast. So right along the coastline, there's a huge density of lace morph records. So you need to thin that out. So we discarded duplicate well records that occurred within the same five kilometer pixel, throw them out. Um, that's a way of reducing spatial water correlation. Um, and then once you're happy with the records, we need to consider what um, climatic variables best predict what's going on with species. So 
you've got to make a justifiable case for that. So it's a reptile that's used temperature and precipitation variables, of course. Um, we expected that aridity was important and, and things like that. Um, solar radiation as well. So we've, we've got some um, an aridity index, a solar radiation variable. And what we found was that the lace, the bells morph uh, occupies more arid niche, but specifically the variables that underpin that, I think we didn't present them in the paper, but they're in the supplementary material in the paper. We have these density profiles of um, both what how both more sample uh, each variable. You can see that the bells morph more frequently samples um, areas that are higher in aridity, higher in solar radiation. So that's what you'd expect. It's less cloudy in the outback with more sunshine. Um, and greater thermal extremes. So it wasn't necessarily that it's a hotter niche, but it's experiences more extreme. So when it gets really hot and when it gets really cold, we, we know that about the outback. It's people think that it's perpetually hot all the time, but you know, I've camped in the outback in winter, you get frost on your on your tent and your swag. So so yeah, so it's not just that it's hotter, it's that it experiences a wider breadth of thermal extremes. Um, so those those are the main climatic variables that that predict the separation. Uh, as you probably read in the discussion, after we mentioned what variables are correlated with the, with the separation, we then went on to speculate, okay, what, what's the uh, functional basis behind it, which our paper couldn't address directly. This wasn't a paper that did experiments where we got lace monitors and worked out you know, how fitness varies uh, among more so, uh, across the environmental gradient, but we suspect it's either related to temperature or, or camouflage. So... Under the physiological hypothesis, you might expect that um, a lighter colour morph, we know that things tend to be lighter in hotter environments because if you're a dark morph, you'll heat up too quick and you've got to spend your day seeking shade. And the opposite is true with more melanic forms. If it's darker, that might afford you advantages in cooler coastal areas because you can heat up quicker and more quickly go about your business finding food, finding mates, that sort of thing. Just to clarify... Yep. Just to clarify as well, the bells is like kind of banded almost. Like it's got big chunks of yellow uh, mixed yeah. in with the black, whereas the lace obviously is more lacy. And so it's mostly black with just little specks of yellow in there. Right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, that needs to be mentioned. Why isn't under that hypothesis I just said, why is, why is the bells morph not entirely yellow? Why is it banded? Well, if, if I had to reach for answers, I would say that things still need to be camouflaged and we know that banding and and patterns conceal things. So it might be a competing interest. It might be I'm yellow and pale coloured for thermal reasons, but I also have these black bands because I need to break up the body outline to still try and seal me from a dingo that might just be the right distance enough away that those bands fooled, fooled them from thinking that the lizard wasn't there owing to the bands, but that's total speculation. Um, but the second thing we spent a lot of time discussing is that it might not be the direct link between climate and physiology influencing colour. It could be indirect. It could be climate influences the habitat, the trees, the soil, and the predominant background colours, and that's driving the, the differences. So it could be more of a predator thing. It could be climate still related in a correlative way, but it might be the, the climate signal that we're seeing might be um, indirect, indirectly um, related to differences in predation. So um, maybe a, a bell says lace monitor in a very dark um, forested environment on the East Coast, which is dominated by 
blacks and browns, uh, maybe they stand out a lot and maybe they get hit by predators a lot and maybe that's why the Bells North seems to be more rare along the East Coast. So these are just different um, possibilities we discuss. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that because I, I was looking at your map where you kind of plot the distribution of um, of bells and lace monitors in Australia. And I noticed that up um, uh, in, in northern Queensland, where it's hotter and more tropical, there were a couple um, bells morphs found along the coast. And I was wondering, like, is that just because it's much hotter there, even in the forest, even though it's a, a shaded, darker environment, it's just hot because it's hot and tropical up there. Do you think that the morphs may come into contact more often in the more like northern reaches of their range? Or or do you think that the bells are probably still pretty rare along the coast, um, even in, in tropical northern Queensland? Yeah, so of course, we, we don't have the exact answers for that. But the, the reasons that for why those patterns could emerge are interesting. And I had a discussion, a paragraph in the discussion devoted to this. We had to remove it because the reviewers wanted us to, we had to defend ourselves a bit more and write another paragraph explaining why biases that are inherent to citizen science data weren't exactly relevant to our study. But so I'm glad that I get to at least um, present that <laughs> extra paragraph. That's what podcasts are for. Podcasts for, yeah. So, so for a moment, let's... Welcome to Rebuttal. Yes, here we go. <laughs> um, so for a moment, let's throw out the whole case I've made about this being climate-linked. Um, an another speculation was that, okay, it occurs in the outback. What if it's just a mutation that emerged? Well, it is a mutation, but let's say it's just totally random. It popped out. It happened to occur in the outback, and it did well. That's why we see it in the outback. And... Let's assume that it has no uh, relationship to climate. It's only we're only seeing a signal of it being correlated with climate simply because of a historical accident that appeared in the outback initially. So, the main point of what I'm about to say is requires a bit of an understanding about the main um, lay of the landscape. You've got this big north to south mountain range, the Great Dividing Range. Think of it like the Great Wall of China. Maybe that. Biographic, biogeographic barrier is having some influence over the distribution of the moss as well. So if you look at our map in the paper, figure two, you can see that it's completely monomorphic lace moss populations in the east, the southeast coast, so along from Melbourne, all along eastern Victoria. And then it's a bit curious, that, and that's where the Great Dividing Range is really high, really continuous. There's no lace monitors getting from the inland side through to the coastal side. But it's just really curious that the first major break in the Great Dividing Range, when you get up to about Newcastle, there's this valley called the Hunter Valley. It's, it's a dry lowland corridor that connects the East Coast to the outback. Sure enough, that's the first place where the lace monitor, the Bell's morph records start to spill to the coast. So, and that is supported by a genetics paper. So I believe it was Smithson et al. 2013. Australian researchers that did a genetics paper on most monitors and they found that there was different clades. There was a coastal clade and there was an inland clade. And again, they show that the um, inland clade comes through the Hunter Valley and starts sharing its genetic stories with the coastal population. So, and it's just interesting that our map of how the lace monitor morphs are distributed follow a similar pattern. So, 
in regards to your question, up what's going on up in Queensland, if you look at our figure two, we've got a digital elevation model that shows elevation, more black areas, a higher elevation. Once you get into Queensland, the Great Dividing Range starts to chill out a bit. It gets lower, it's more broken. And maybe that's why we see that it's where that barrier starts to relax is where we see the bells more start coming into more coastal areas. So, yeah, so as any scientist must do when they make a case, um, we didn't want to leave out the alternative possibility that this is a correlative distribution model. It's not, we're not, you know, addressing what's going on under the hood. And that's something that all correlative models suffer. Like species correlated species distribution modeling is really popular because it's most often it's very informative and yes, it doesn't have the underlying mechanisms. You've got a, uh, a lizard species that you show there's a correlation between that species distribution and rainfall. Well, maybe it's not actually influenced by rainfall. Maybe it's just that the lizard actually has these certain um, affiliations with the leaf litter that you find in high rainfall environments. Maybe it doesn't care a stuff about uh, rainfall. So, But that's okay if it still gives you an accurate model if it's implicitly capturing those underlying processes. So our model is implicitly capturing something. We, we just don't know what it is. So unfortunately, that discussion about uh, the more biogeographic uh, uh, explanation to the dispersal explanation for what's going on didn't make it into the discussion, but I'm glad I could present it to you. Yeah, that's cool. That's an interesting yeah. hypothesis. Another thing that's like that uh, remains to be tested here. That's cool. It also made me think about this whole time I had been churning on something. Who thermorate? Who thermoregulates more? A dark lizard in a cool climate, or a lighter colored lizard in an arid, sunny climate? Because they're both a they both have to engage in thermoregulation. One's going to stay out of the sun a certain amount of the day. One's got to get into the sun a certain amount of day. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know what the answer. Maybe there's no answer to that. Maybe that's maybe that's a Zen koan or something, you know. But uh, it's it's one yeah. of those questions that you know it's like well I don't I don't really know. But they're both uh, have a different approach to how they thermoregulate. So yeah, the, the need for something to be heating up and always seeking sun would obviously cost a lot and waste a lot of time and resources, but so does something in the arid zone where the main agenda is trying to keep cool. They don't necessarily have to worry as yeah. much about heating up but keeping cool. Which one's more demanding on, on time and energy? Um, in both cases, you're not eating. So you're, yeah, that's right. there's no caloric intake on either one. So which yeah. this will be keep me awake. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I'll be thinking about this oh yeah well these <laughs> these lace models are keeping up a lot the uh at three in the morning that's that's actually how it started <laughs> I, was, I was in bed and i got the idea and i literally shot up out of bed and told my friend that the third author on the paper and we went to iNaturalist. i started writing uh, the rationale the assumptions what would be true if our hypothesis is true what we'd expect to be the case and we just started scoring the morse uh then there he we download the data set and when you download records from iNaturalist, you basically get this this neat Excel file of all the, the metadata. I think it's like the second column in. It's a link to the photo. So you just yeah. work your way through it, clicking the link and opening it, looking at it. So I, got, I told him to start at the bottom and work up. I started at the top and worked down. We just made a new column called phenotype and wrote bells or, or lace. You're lucky, man. So, I, um, I wanted to do this. 
I'm working on a big paper on um, the eastern pine snake right now. And we have all these genetic samples from all across their range. And um, but they're really variable in in their color pattern and the color pattern uh, basically dictates what subspecies they're in. Um, but it's not distinct. Like, like it sounds like the lace monitor is like it's either bells or it's lace and there's no in between for pine snakes. It's really, um, there's a lot of variation in there. Like some are darker, some are lighter. And, um, there's, there's one that's completely black. That's obvious and easy. Um, but there's a lot of variation, so it can be harder to score, uh, some of those intermediate mm. ones. And, yeah, I was even thinking about using iNaturalist and HerpMapper for that exact reason. Um, but yeah, so it, it the the lace monitor is really kind of an ideal system for for testing this hypothesis. It's cool. So in your study species, was that was it continuous variation? There wasn't discrete. It's either this morph or this morph. It's sort of more continuous. There, there, there's more to it than that. Like the number of blotches as well is often a, a good way of telling them apart. But again, like if the photo is only of the head, you can't really count the blotches. Um, but yeah, it it is pretty. How do you put this? In certain parts of their range, there, um, there's kind of a faded version, the Florida pine snake, that's kind of washed out and browner, and then. Um, in the far north, there's the the northern pine snake, which has it's much uh, darker, has uh, more well-defined blotches, essentially. But then there's this hybrid area where you can get some that look pretty Florida and some that look pretty northern, and it, it kind of depends on the animal. And so we were trying to look at um, whether they're genetically distinct at all, or if you could use genetics to to tell them apart and I won't give away the answer, but, um, as with most things, it, it's more complicated than, um, than, than it, than it seems even morphologically it's complicated. That's why we tried using genetics, looking at genetics, mm, that's even more complicated. And so there, there doesn't seem to be a nice way to divide, um, Florida pine snakes from Northern pine snakes. Yeah. So is it, is it that, um, do you get, is it geographical variation in color or geographical variation in a polymorphism? So like in one particular location, uh -huh. do you have multiple morphs or is it um, in this location, it's this morph and in a different location, it's entirely different? Morph? In a lot of, in most areas, I would say there's usually just one morph, but in a couple areas, um, you can find both. And um, and you, yeah, you, you can find both and you can find individuals that are, that are harder to score, I would say. And so yeah. it does, I, I would bet it's just kind of, um, a continuous variation rather than like an actual polymorphism. Right. Yeah. So yeah, obviously the, the lace monitor is a, it's a true polymorphism in the sense that, well, it depends what you, what definition you go with, but the main definition we go with is that it's a discrete heritable morph and, um, the, the key part of that definition was that um, coming from the person who coined the term polymorphism was that there is this coexistence. So, yeah, if and this is something I had to, you know, this is my first real deep dive into a paper on colour, so I had to really shore myself up with what I was talking about. So it was only, you know, a couple of weeks into writing it, I was like, oh, this isn't, it's not geographical variation in colour. It isn't that, it's not that as you go further north, it's all bells, phase, lace monitors, and when you go south, it's 
lace morph, um, it's geographical variation in the polymorphism. So um, right. it's about the polymorphism and the relative frequency. So it's not that not necessarily about color varying, it's it's varying ratios. So because as we highlight in the paper, this in Patrick across a lot of the range, there's a lot of observations of bells and, and lace morphs fighting each other and, and that sort of thing. So they overlap. It's the relevant thing is the differences in the relative densities of the occurrence. Right. Those, so. I would sure I we don't have to go down the genetics rabbit hole, but um I would love to yeah, just plot the frequency of those alleles along the coast and then um I bet you could you could test your out of the outback hypothesis as well to to model yeah. how it's how it's changed over time. But that that's a, a future study. Definitely. Yeah. Did you have more in terms of conclusions, I think um, some of your, your conclusions were what you th you thought, right? That you have uh, the Bell's monitor variant inland, and then you have uh, the lace monitor variant on the coast. But then you in some places you have um, maybe, an, I don't want to call it a collision zone, but a zone where both of those, uh, like you were talking about this Hunter, Hunter's Valley, where those things sort of tend to, you can have both of, of those uh, variants in, the, in that play. So was there anything of, that was a surprise in your conclusion? Um, no, nothing, nothing really surprising. Um, no, nothing really interesting. I mean, the interesting and surprising and the oh wow factors basically came out of looking at the photos, to be honest, like just looking at them and, you know, you get an insight into, even though you can't be at all these places at once, just seeing them and going, oh, there's two Bell's phase lace monitors up a tree at the one spot in the one photo. That's pretty cool. Like, you know, I, I think seeing I think seeing a lace monitor anywhere under any circumstance is an awesome moment to cherish. And, you know, I've only, I live in Western Victoria. We don't have a lot of trees. And so I actually live in a bit of a distributional gap. I've got to drive about two hours away before I start seeing lace monitors. So, I haven't seen a lot of lace monitors compared to say my East Coast friends in Sydney, but the ones that I have seen, I've I've been all across this country. I've seen some pretty pretty rare things that very few people have seen, but I still stop and look in awe when I see a lace monitor, which most people regard as common. But you know, and I I don't believe I've actually seen a Bell's morph lace monitor in the wild. I've only seen the, the normal lace monitor. So there are a few good spots. West of Brisbane, I'm told that you can get them pretty reliably. So maybe one day, but I'll just write papers about them until then. I I thought the conclusion about the specific climate variables was was pretty interesting as well. That like the aridity and the extremes in temperature that were so strongly correlated with the Bell's phase. I thought those were to me as someone who's never seen a lace monitor before and. Um, yeah, never been to Australia before. I that that was cool to see such strong correlations between uh in in a lizard that that overlaps with um with the coastal cooler um lace form. I thought I thought that was an interesting conclusion too. Yeah, it, it, it's easy to find citations that say, "Oh, this climate variable is linked to color variation in this way or, or this way." So we know that like Glodge's rule um says that as in more 
high rainfall and cooler environments, we might expect organisms to be darker um, and, and lighter in, in environments that are the opposite. That's sort of thing. thermal melanism hypothesis, which you're probably very aware of. Um, cooler environments should, should favour more melanistic uh, forms, that sort of thing. So, but what I realised in the discussion was, oh, I'm not necessarily trying to explain um, things in a what climate variables influence colour. It was what climate variables influence variation in colour polymorphism, and there's a lot less citations about that. So, fortunately, there was a study that showed that um, on this dragon lizard in South Australia, um, Tenophorus modestus, um, they showed that geographical variation in the colour polymorphism had a had a link to aridity. So. I was pretty chuffed when I found that that uh, citation. I was like, "Oh, so did we!" So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what climate variables influence geographical variation in polymorphism is a is a different story to simply what climate variables influence color along a single spectrum. Sure. So I'm I'm also then makes me wonder. Another question is, what is the origin point for uh, Varanus varius? The, mon- the the lace monitor, is it the coast and then this uh, polymorphic variation that occurred allowed it to then populate um, more drier arid region- regions or is it vice versa where it's an arid ver- cool. arid species that the, the, the variance in color allowed it to move in and be very successful along along the, the coastal regions and you know with the cooler temperatures and whatnot. That's an interesting question. I, I have absolutely no idea. So <laughs> I think with a, with a lot of our fauna in Australia, you know, we had we had a lot of uh, lineages that were already on board the raft when we crashed into Asia. But then when we did, we, we got a lot of stock from migrating from a south north to south direction. So um, I'm, I'm not. I think we, we might have got our varanids from from there. I think it might have radiated from north to south. Um, but yeah, what was it initially a a, a form that looked like something like the lace morph, from which later the bells morph butted off, or was it the opposite? That would be a very interesting thing to find the answer to. But yeah, the the general, um, I guess, naive initial speculation might be that the bells morph is a latecomer. But again, we're very biased because we all live on the east coast and we we see the lace morph. More frequently, and we think that that's the, the status quo, and that's the the prototype. And so, you know, I was a lot of people just they call it the Bell's phase, and the Bell's morph. It has a special name, but the lace morph didn't really have a name. People just called it lace monomorph or the normal morph. And so, I actually had to stop calling it the normal morph and actually give it a name and call it lace morph. Um, ah, yes. Because, yeah, but we don't know. It could be what? What if the Bell's morph is the, the original state, and, and the lace morph is a more recent adaptation. We don't have the answer. Well, when you when you write when you finish your paper that conclusively proves one way or the other, we'll have you back on the show. Yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> I think I think I might be done with lace on the color for a little while, simply okay. because I think I think I know not because I'm not interested, but because. I think the bigger picture here is what's going on with the nesting ecology. That's what I'm turning to next. So uh, I think, I think it's is. an interesting thing too. The the fact that a couple things: uh, their fidelity to trees, and then their fidelity to these termite mounds. Yeah, just waiting to be 
be modeled and mapped. So it's waiting for you to stick cameras in those things. Yeah, yeah. Using using baby monitors to monitor baby monitors as I say. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, you got your paper title right there. <laughs> yep. yes. so if, anyone, if anyone out there can point me in the direction of a really good monitor that it probably doesn't exist and it probably costs a million dollars. But I'd love something that you could just put in a, a mound and it's low maintenance and it, it's battery life lasts for a bloody long time and it's wireless and, and it can live feed images back to my laptop so I can see the moment they happen and see what happens. Yeah. If anyone knows of such such camera technology, I, I would love to do that. Yeah, you just need a it needs to be solar powered so you stick the little panel on top of the mound yeah. and satellite lake like out there. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That'd, that'd be the finding out what's going on with those hatchlings is going to be so interesting. Yeah, it's, I'm totally. sure they're available, but they're probably not cheap. No. <laughs> but then again, there might be some there might be some engineer listening who can be like, "Oh yeah, I can hook up like a temperature sensor on a little like game camera with a uh, with a solar panel, and boom, you you got your answer." But Go I'm ahead. sure there's a lot of it's a fun dream. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good segue point. Uh, we talk about other things that you're interested in, in other directions you want to go, and you want to talk about some of the other projects that you're involved with, and yeah, maybe you so. have a maybe you can talk about a little bit about since you are kind of a, a an Australian herper, and you like seeing other forms. Maybe you can talk about some of that too. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what my interest stems from, from reptiles themselves and, you know, exploring that in whatever means I can. As I said earlier, and research is the most recent and prevalent way of doing that, but I still like getting out and going around Australia and photographing things. And and that's how I learned a lot from Australian reptiles, just when I was in my early 20s and, or late teens, just flying into some city of Australia Various other mates fly in from other capital cities. We converge on the same town, get in a hire car, and just go on a bender of a two-week trip spanning multiple states with the prime objective of just photographing as many new things that we haven't seen as possible in as short as possible time. So it's Alex, are you hearing this? Because this sounds like a dream to me. Yeah, yeah, this sounds like a dream trip. That sounds like what I do, yeah, what Mike and I do for fun all the time. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, if you ever want to come to Australia, let's, let's go out, let's go uh, find some monitors. But yeah, that was a good means of, of working out what's going on and having all these hypotheses and ideas and that, that background. So, you know, I suspect that people that have more of a strict research background, they, they didn't have that passion and love for reptiles early on. They sort of they go to university, find, fall in love with science itself, and then, and then later fix reptiles on top of that. Um, that's fine. And a lot of those people are bloody good scientists. But what I'm, what I seem to observe is that it's, it's the people that might be, um, less formidable scientists, but they've got that background of creeping around in the outback, looking under different <laughs> rocks and going, Oh, did you know that this population occurs here and they have more scales over here? And all oh, that thing is actually here. You know, having that. Uh, background and equipping that for research later, I've found that to be pretty effective and and I, I'd rather have the field knowledge and know the intricacies of Australian herpetology and later try to become a scientist on top of that 
than the other way around. And I've had a few people comment that to me that you know they they wish they had done it the other way around. And you know, not everyone is crazy enough, I guess, to go and squander thousands of dollars on a ten day trip to go and see all this stuff to to learn that learn that stuff. You know, a lot of people their experience with the field is maybe a small number of, of field trips they've done for the purpose of the university degree or, or field research, which is, which is great. But you know, if you really want to understand the outback and, and what's going on out there and all the hypotheses you could be addressing with your research, it really helps to, if you are a dyed in the wool herpetologist, it does know all the, the nuances of what's going on out there. There's something to be said for these freewheeling adventures. Um, just because the way that you later relate back to them when you're asking yourself the, yourself the big questions and you wake yourself up in the morning and have to go look at iNaturalist because you've got an idea, you know, blossomed in your head. So there's, it obviously affords you more opportunities to uh, look at things in a different way and, and from a, a, an on-the-ground-based way, you know. You're there, and so you have a different experience to draw from. It it has its downsides too. It keeps me up at night. I I have a chronic obsession with coming up with research projects, and I think (laughs) it's born out of just hanging around the herpetology scene for the better part of a decade. You can't help but know these things. It's like sooner or later you're going to know about the Bell's phase lace monitor thing, and as a scientist you've got to be aware of various methods to address that. And I like problems, and I like solutions and answers to problems which as i assume most researchers are motivated by that and so yeah i just i can't help but um, drum up various projects but the downside of that is i'm now overcommitted and i have too many side projects so <laughs> uh, if you'd like to hear about some of them one of them is um well snake catching i've been catching snakes and licensed snake catchers since i was 19 so i've been doing that for about 10 years now um, so in australia when you say snake catcher we're talking about uh, someone who removes nuisance animals from yeah, that's property. Is that yeah, so safe people assumption? Up and they, yeah, they, they see a snake in their backyard. They don't want it there, um, uh, which is reasonable. Down here in southern Victoria, basically all the snakes that we have are lapids, so they're highly venomous. And the main snake we get around town is a lowlands copperhead, Australaps superbus. They're, they're highly venomous approximately 13th most in the snake in the world if we want to subscribe to the the rat-based model of lethality. <laughs> um, the LD50 based model. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. The all-encompassing LD50. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're a problem snake for people, so we remove them. And so I've been doing that since I was 19. And what most catchers do across the country is what a snake catcher does. They come out, catch a snake, relocate it somewhere nearby in a nice swamp or whatever the appropriate habitat is for the species, and often for a fee, and they'll move on. It was only in recent years, again, always with my research brain activated, I thought, hang on, we've already got government permits to be catching these elusive things that you rarely see. We've literally got people all across the city with my number ready to call when they see one. It's like, that is the ideal research situation. So... um, I wrote additional animal ethics approvals and additional scientific permits. And it was such an easy case to make. I've never had a research permit and ethics approval uh, approved uh, as quickly in my life because I basically just made the case, look, we want to do this and this and this, bearing in mind that we are already, you're, you've already given us permission to catch these things under the wildlife controller license. 
hold them in a bag for up to 24 hours. All we're asking to do is measure them, weigh them, take a salmonella swab from the cloaca, regurgitate their last meal and measure and weigh that. And they just went, great, you know, making use of all this, this data that's already right there. Why not spend an extra, you know, 30 minutes just collecting some extra variables? So we're doing a life history study on the top of it to get around town. And we're already finding some really interesting things. So what I find most interesting is we, and we haven't even analysed the data yet, but see what's going on. We're finding that the size of the prey that the snakes are eating isn't correlated to body size. So that tells us something about what, what we'd expect from optimal foraging theory in the species. It's, um, if you're an ambush predator, which these are not, if you're an ambush predator, you can sit and wait and be selective and strike out and grab a very large meal and that will keep you content for a few weeks. What these guys do is they seem to forage widely, continuously, losing a lot of energy. So when you do come across a morsel of food, you can't afford to be fussy. You need to eat that to keep your energy going. So what that means is we're, we're regurgitating these snakes and we're finding comically small frogs coming out of massive snakes and vice versa. We're regurgitating tiny snakes and huge frogs are coming out. So just last week we had a large copperhead and we regurgitated it and about 10 tiny frogs came out of it. And one was so small I didn't even know they made frogs that small. It was a clicking frog that was actually smaller than my pinky fingernail. And so I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is very interesting. So we measure and weigh all that, and then we're going to correlate um, snake snap event length with the, with the size of the, the prey and presumably there'll be no relation. That's fascinating. Very cool. Um, and, and here in North America, we have some similar species like our racers and coach whips that, and our whip snakes that do the same thing. You know, they're... Uh, what would you call them? Active hunters or active foragers, and pretty much they have a, a really wide diet uh, range of diet. The same, I suspect, for the same reason because they're burning up a lot of calories and they can't be picky. So, yep. but yeah. I'm curious too. Are you when you're going on these calls? Are you recording? Uh, you're probably recording the location, but uh, are you um, making notations on uh, uh, habit? Like where where was the snake in terms of? What habitat or microhabitat was it utilizing when you when you do that? Yeah, uh, again, I, I started this project also when I had too much free time on my hands. So the data set that I <laughs> made had way too many variables, and we're now three years into that study. We haven't missed a single snake call. We've got data on all of them, and and we're recording way too many variables. <laughs> that takes a lot of time. So yeah, we're recording everything from there's a life history study that will probably be one paper on the measurements and. You know, we get dead snakes handed in, we cut them open and look at what's going on with their reproductive state given the time of year and that sort of thing. But we also want to analyse what's going on with the actual process of the snake pull-outs themselves and the activity of the snake. So in terms of activity, um, where was it? What is the distance between a human dwelling? Like, there's, no, there's not much data out there saying where the snake, when people do pull out for a snake, we're not considering necessarily the snake observation, we're considering it more importantly as an observation of a human snake interaction. So what we're modeling with probably the second paper is what's going on with the occurrence in space and time of human snake interactions. And what we seem to find is most of them occur within five metres of a building, which is what you'd expect. People are going out to put something in the bin or go out to their car and that's where they see the snake. So it's not happening down the back hundreds of metres in the paddock. They're not seeing those snakes. Um, we're getting all kinds of data, what, what its behaviour was, what was the time difference between when the client saw the snake to when we got there, and does that 
predict whether it was successful, a successful snake catcher or not. So, yeah, I, I don't know many studies where they're getting data on the nature of the call-out process itself. We're asking people what their motivations for calling us out were, how many snakes they've seen in the time that they've, they've lived there and that sort of thing. So we find that people generally, that they live in good snake habitat, but they, they've been there for decades and they see one or two snakes. So it's really a testament to just how infrequent, um, at least in our study system, um, snake encounters are. People, we very rarely have... Um, done a call out for someone twice so it's usually a one-off lightning strike appearance from those people well we have a friend in phoenix uh his name is brian hughes uh and he has a, a very successful rattlesnake well a snake relocation service there in phoenix and i think in tucson and um he uh takes date like you he's taken a, a large quantity of data on the on where the snake was captured, you know, type of snake, uh, physical data, uh, that sort of thing, uh, microhabitats. Uh, but also, um, as he got into this, he started uh, uh, becoming interested in the human-snake interaction thing, same as you. Uh, and a, uh, he worked with uh, 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 Heather. I can't think of her last name. I'm sorry, Heather. Um, it's been a long day, but uh, he worked with a, a woman at uh, ASU there in Arizona State University, and they developed some um, surveys that you know, micro surveys that people could take on their phone when they're you know when they're asked you know getting the service or at the end of at the end of the removal service, so they can start gathering social data where you know not just where the snake is, and but socioeconomic data can be pulled out of that. Uh, the people's attitudes towards snakes, all of that thing could be pulled out of that. And uh, if you're interested, I'll I'll send you a, a link to the episode that that he uh, uh, that I talked with Heather, and also the one I talked to Brian in a different episode. And uh, it's amazing the 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 work they're doing with that data. So I'll I'll uh, send you a link in there in email. But uh, yeah, that'd be good. I thought that was very cool how they brought in the social scientist to do a lot of yeah, just the social interactions of of between humans and snakes. It's a, an aspect that there, I mean, snakes and humans have a very uh, uh, strong connection for tens of thousands of years, probably actually hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if you count when humans weren't even humans and we were just primates. And um, it, it is important to to quantify that properly as well. It was cool that they brought on the social scientists to do those surveys. You should definitely take a listen. Yeah, definitely. Be what else are you involved with? Oh, uh, various skink miscellaneous. Um, we're, we're a research group that studies skinks. And, um, so the person I work for is Professor David Chappell. He's, um, if you look up, the word skink in the dictionary, you'll see a photo of his face next to it. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he just does a lot of research on skinks. He's, he's a herpetologist in general, but he's made quite a reputation for um, focusing on skinks and um, he's, he's been publishing on skinks for decades and um, he's the, the head of the IUCN skink specialist group. So, oh, okay. So under the IUCN, they have different specialist groups where they – assess all the species under their jurisdiction and, and they say, okay, we've got all these ones that are considered data deficient or their conservation status needs to be updated. And so they lead the charge on this international endeavour of other 
specialists of that group and they get together and they review the conservation status and that sort of thing. So he's leading that. And so cool. as a research assistant in his lab, I'm involved in a lot of that sort of stuff. And recently we had a project where we were writing a bunch of conservation assessments and listing advices for the federal government, which included updating a lot of um, the conservation statuses for a lot of things. You've probably heard about the, the fires we had in 2019 and 2020. Oh, the massive. yeah. Basically, that stimulated the government to say, okay, probably a lot of things need their conservation status review. And so that was a big thing. There was a lot of um, species expert assessment panels, I think they were called, but basically it was a fish one, mammal one. Most organism groups had one, and we were part of the herpetology one where we went through and basically reevaluated things or a lot of things that weren't even evaluated, they were data deficient, but we've since had more data that they could probably actually be assessed. And so we've, now a lot of a lot of skink species are, are, are elevated in their listing. And so uh, our, the main priority of our research group lately has been on threatened and data deficient skink species in Australia. So that's that's where the, the diversity is in Australia. If you open up a field guide of Australian reptiles, 50% of it is skinks. You'll, you'll, you'll land on a skink. Yeah, I was, was going to say, you know, uh, Alex referred to Australia as sort of being reptile central, and I I would take it a step further and say it's skink central. I think there are Absolutely. more skinks in Australia yes. than anywhere else, correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And although, you know, I profess my love for varanids, we only have about 30 of them in the country. I'm really interested in, you know, there's there's not enough to keep me propped up for a fulfilling career in, in, in 30 species. So the diversity in in uh, skinks is amazing. So we're doing a bunch of taxonomy projects as well. I could spend the next 10 years exclusively working on skink taxonomy projects in Australia and still have more to do. So there's a lot to do with skinks, and I find the diversity interesting. And the fact that a lot of people don't focus on some of these more cryptic skinks they don't find interesting or hard to distinguish from other things. And these are the things that are data efficient, right, because people don't care about them enough to go and study them. So... We have a lot of instances where there's this outlying plateau in the middle of nowhere in Australia where it has an endemic stink and no one's ever studied it, so we don't know if it's completely fine or it's critically endangered. So our research group now focuses on basically throwing honours students and PhD students at these species and say, okay, we've got the species, go and blitzkrieg it with a research program, do the field work, do surveys, what is its abundance, what are the threats, what are its habitat requirements. And that is giving us the data that allows us to perform the first conservation assessments under IUCN here and get them listed. So cool. And I, I suspect there's some, if you're taking genetic data, I would suspect there'll get some interesting results out of that eventually too. There's probably some new species hanging out in there and um, yeah, definitely. maybe and some other surprises. Feature. Yeah, that's a feature of some of our projects. We've got a PhD student working on a species who is the taxonomic status is uncertain. So it's not only that there's conservation issues, there's this northern population and we don't know if they're a completely different species or if it's related to the southern ones. And so, yeah, there's definitely that genetics and taxonomic element that plays into those projects as well. Which, so. which is also important because we, we protect things that we have named to usually to a species level. So we can't protect it if, if it's, we don't know what it is. So we have oh, to figure exactly, that out yeah. too so it all... Fits into our our you know the the, uh, the if you will the legislative branch of conservation which you know you have a list in your 
or your state or, or wherever of the things that are protected and the list has the name and you have to have, you know, it has to be recognized as an actual species. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. We, we, we need taxonomists. Absolutely. And, uh, if outsiders might view it as a trivial matter, you know, it's just a name assigned to a species. It's like, look at the implications it has. Like if, if we don't think something's a valid taxon, because there's not enough evidence, but it actually is. And it might be, in a geographical location that's under threat from development or climate change or something, and it's about to be wiped off the face of the earth. If we don't acknowledge it as this as a unique species or even an evolutionary significant unit, whether it's a species or an evolutionary significant lineage, it's all the same as biodiversity. And you know, as, as you can make an easy case to any conservationist why we need to conserve biodiversity and genetic variation because that's sure. you know, the buffer that populations have against uh, the ever-increasing threats that we're causing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's great to, to look at obscure uh, things like, oh, why do the lace monders look like that, which conservationists don't care about, but I know at least us three here care about that. <laughs> you know, why is this turtle's neck so long? Why does that turtle look awesome? Why is its head so dorsally <laughs> compressed? You know, just obscure <laughs> evolutionary miscellaneous. But I like that I also get to work with things that have practical conservation implications like these conservation projects it's not just the research and the data and the analysis it's like that paper then gets cited and used by people working in industry environmental consultants land land care practitioners that are like we actually don't know what the ideal habitat structure is to maintain for this grassland dependent species whose grassland habitat's getting wiped out just completely outcompeted with weeds we've got some species in victoria who's occur in native grasslands and some of the most threatened things in the country because the paddock environments, the, the grasslands been converted to paddocks and agriculture and the remnant patches of native grassland that are left, they're just mostly weeds and the weeds are out competing with native species. And so it's, it's just an absolute mess. And so we need this fundamental basic data on these data deficient lizards so that we can at least write meaningful and effective conservation recovery plans. Well said, well said. And uh, it's, a, it's a problem in a lot of places. And I always point out that you just don't know how many people are out there doing this really basic work, whether they're d- digging out invasive species or surveying for them like, like, you're, like you're doing and, and understanding what, what, what you have. There's just tons of people doing this work, and it's, it's, all, you know, it's all extremely important in the, in the when we look at the global herpetofauna, it's just very important work. Alex, anything else? What's on your no, mind? No, no, I'm I'm just sitting back and enjoying the conversation. This is this is fun, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm 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 good. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jules, maybe you can help me settle a bet. I I once told somebody that um, if I if I came to Australia and I spent a couple of weeks tooling around, let's just say I. I Spent in the, in the northern, let's say Queensland, Victoria area, maybe a little bit more. But I spent a couple of weeks out there. I boasted that I think I could probably come up with a hundred lizard species. Is that fair to say? In a couple of weeks, yeah, you, yeah. I, I reckon that's totally doable. Um, we just went on a big research trip. We flew to Darwin and drove through the Kimberley and the Pilbara, and these are some of the most biodiverse regions of Australia. It wasn't the best time of year. It was winter. Um, 
for the dry season up there. So we could have got even more, but you know, we we cracked a hundred species, and and that is Jeez. that's considering that we had really specific research priorities. We were targeting a specific genus of skink and doing experiments on them and wasting time doing that. And we still found a hundred over a hundred uh, reptile species. So if you go to the right areas at the right time, so like North Queensland, very biodiverse in terms of reptiles yeah. and basically everything. If you went there at the right time of year and a couple of weeks, absolutely, um, you'd, you'd rack up a big list of uh, new species, no problem. Cool. Yeah, that that was the other thing that I was daydreaming about. It was like, all right, if I go to Australia, like, where are the best places to like to see the most number of species in the shortest amount of time? And and I just kept going back. It's like, well, all right, if I go there, I won't see this. If I go here, I won't see this. I was like, nope, I'm just gonna have to take like three months and do like a massive road trip. Like, there's just there's so much to see. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Jules would have the same problem coming over here to the United True. States, right? Where do you, True. Where do you start? Where, where's you know, where's your maximum effort? Yeah, going I would to be? definitely need a local to, to tell me where to go. I'd have to spend weeks messaging American herpers, and I I know essentially none of them on a personal basis. <laughs> well, you know, you know a couple oh, more now, so yeah, <laughs> I do, I do. We'll, we'll do a trade. I will take you into the north woods of Maine and show you a great herping time. And then, no, just kidding. Like, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll show you around uh, the U.S. if you show us around yeah. Australia. It's a deal. I'll take that up anytime. <laughs> yeah well i i want to i want to thank you for coming on the show jules and and talking about uh this and i'm i'm sure this is um uh this is alex's happy place so i'm sure he's happy to to talk to you as well i i was oh. definitely this was this was a ton of fun i i just love uh studies that that look at the why and the how of of color, of coloration, of color polymorphisms and all that. It was just icing on top of the cake that you used community science data to do it and and had a really cool data set. It was uh, a good, if, if we're gonna turn this into a public service announcement, it's a good um, way to show people just how these relatively simple data points, a photo with a date and a time on it, get used by scientists all over the place and this is just one cool example of how how the data get used so yeah thanks for coming on thanks for making or doing the the cool study and uh hopefully we'll we'll have you back on here to talk about um lace monitor nesting ecology very soon hopefully yeah that'd be good i'd I'd be glad to come on again so yeah thanks for having me mike and alex really appreciate it it's been fun Hey, it's me again. I want to thank Jules Farquhar for chatting with Alex and I, and uh, congratulations to Jules and to his co-authors Armin Pilly and Wynn Russell for their excellent research paper. And once again, the title of the paper is Using Crowdsourced Photographic Records to Explore Geographical Variation in Color Polymorphism. And if you would like a PDF copy, uh, drop me an email. I'll get that off to you. And as always, I want to thank Dr. Alex Crone for his input and enthusiasm. 
Herp Science Sunday is Alex's brainchild, and I'm so happy we get to do this and uh, look forward to the next installment. So thanks, my friend. And thanks to everyone listening. We hope you like the show. That's it for episode 77. I want to thank Jules Farquhar for coming on the show, and we wish you all the best with your future studies. And thanks, as always, to Dr. Alex Krohn, who makes these Herp Science Sunday shows possible. I also want to give one more shout-out to Craig Howard for supporting the show. And I want to say thanks, as always, to all of the So Much Bingle patrons who keep the show rolling on to the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pinkle and so much pinkle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pinkle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And I say this every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and opinions and guest suggestions, whatever it is you got. You can email me at somuchpingle at gmail.com. And somuchpingle, of course, is all one word. And also, please note that I am on Instagram. I've been there a long time now. But I'm also on post.news now and also mastodon. All that is under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.